0: Welcome back to our study of the gospel according to Matthew. We are in chapter 27 and we'll be looking at verses 50 to 56. Now there's a lot to say in this significant text, but our episode is going to be talking about where Jesus' death falls on the timeline of world history. Uh, Several events in uh, the timeline of world history are remembered in some of our holidays. Passover commemorates God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and thus their birth as a nation. The 4th of July commemorates the signing of the Declaration of Independence and thus the birth of the United States. Martin Luther King Day uh, commemorates the assassinated civil rights leader and the great cause he embodied. Good Friday commemorates Jesus' death and Easter Sunday, his resurrection. But it would be a really big mistake to say Easter is just a holiday to commemorate one of the many important events in world history. Uh, for each evangelist, there's an important balance between the life of Christ and the events from Friday to Sunday. We can't ignore the stuff before of all of his uh, earthly ministries, not just filler, and yet we can't say the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus is just another item in his ministry. It is the climax of all that he came to do. Uh, Matthew, in particular, presents these events as the climax also of Israel's history, of all history. You know, if we were going to make a large timeline, including every uh, major world event, including from all the known future events from biblical prophecy, I could see how a person would zero in on somewhere around the middle to the uh, crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and circle it and say, this is the greatest event in all of history, written and pre-written. But, you know, the gospel's perspective pushes us to go a step even further than that. The complex of events surrounding Good Friday and Easter Sunday are not just the center of history, the greatest among many other great events in world history. More than that, Matthew teaches us to think of these events as the very end of the timeline itself and the beginning of a whole new timeline. Now, watch out for this theme as I read our text. And to get a good running start, we'll look at verse But we'll start in verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many, The Jewish conception of history, or at least a major one at this time, is to divide it up into two epics, uh, two ages. Uh, There is this age, and there is the age to come. This age is characterized by sin and death and decay and destruction. The age to come is the eternal golden age when the curse is done away with and God, through the Messiah, rules over everything. It's the age of the kingdom. This basic dichotomy uh, surfaces several times in the New Testament. Uh, For example, Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 32, that uh, regarding the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness, not in this age, nor in the age to come. In Matthew 13, Jesus explains the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he says, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. In Ephesians, uh, to shift gears a little bit, Paul talks about how God has exalted the name of Jesus far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The author to the Hebrews talks about those who have tasted the powers of the age to come and says concerning the Lord Jesus, at the end of the age, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, this isn't to deny that there can be other ages or subdivisions or dispensations within this schema, but the basic paradigm of two ages is clearly there in the New Testament. So, with this in mind, we should think of all history not so much being on one timeline, but Two, And one of the fascinating features of the way Matthew tells his version is that he frames these events as, as so great that they actually stop the first timeline in a sense. They stop this present age and they begin the next one. They begin the kingdom age, the age to come. Our text has reminders that this is only part of the picture but it still is a valid and significant way of looking at things. In a sense, these events have closed one book and have opened another. But in another sense, Matthew 27 and even into 28 remind us that we have still a long ways to go in the current age. So, as with uh, so much of the gospel narratives, this message is not overtly stated, but it certainly subtly is there through allusions and symbolism. One of the most important passages in the Gospel of Matthew uh, regarding the end of the age and the beginning of the next one is, of course, Matthew 24, which we've uh, discussed in earlier episodes. There the disciples come to him and they want to know when is the end of the age going to occur and when will the temple be destroyed? And the Lord Jesus then has a famous interaction. Um, He says, uh, do you see all these things? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He talks about they want to know when will all these things be. And then Jesus talks about um, there being earthquakes. He talks about people being delivered up being put to death, being hated, the love of many growing cold, and then the end coming. He talks about uh, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. And then there's the command, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. After the Lord Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane, where his followers had fallen asleep and had not stayed awake. They should have kept his command, watch and pray. We then see him on the cross with great darkness, covering the whole land or the whole earth. Uh, We see the temple curtain being torn. We see the rocks torn. It's the same word there. Along with great earthquakes, both on Friday and on Sunday. For those who have just been taught up, uh, Jesus's end times discourse about how the age would end—it sure seems like it's happening a lot sooner than they expected. Moreover, the resurrection was often seen as the dividing point between these ages, between the new world or age, um, and the and the previous one. And that's why Matthew has this uh, unique account of the graves being opened and the saints being raised. It's like Jesus is saying, when when Jesus died. It was the end of the world. Now, this perspective of the stopping of one timeline and the beginning of the next continues even in chapter 28. The Great Commission especially picks up on this theme in verses 18 through 20, which reads like this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This famous passage contains a well-acknowledged allusion to Daniel 7, where at the end of the age, uh, which is ruled by vicious monsters, the Ancient of Days is seated, and one like the Son of Man comes on a cloud to receive from him all authority, so that all people serve him. And so, too, in 28.18, Jesus says that he has all authority. This is probably a divine passive, a roundabout way of saying that God has given Jesus all authority. So that everyone on planet Earth, all peoples, all nations, will do what he says and obey Jesus' commands. All this, according to Matthew's perspective, is in the past tense. Now, we can't be mathematically precise here in our theology and pin down the exact moment when Jesus is given all of this authority. After all, we've previously heard Jesus say things like Matthew 11:27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And throughout the gospels, Jesus is constantly presented as the one who has authority. But paying attention to the Old Testament references, whether overt or covert, as well as the major thought flow of Jesus' proclamation of the nearness of the kingdom, requires us to see that this authority is kingdom authority. With the coming of Jesus, particularly but not exclusively through his death and resurrection, the old age has, in a sense, come come to an end, and the new has begun. It is important to situate the significance of Jesus' resurrection with the first century conception of the resurrection as being what separated the new ages, what starts the new creation, which finishes the old world in judgment and ushers in the new. Now, in saying that Jesus' death has transitioned us from the old to the new, Matthew is in full agreement with other New Testament writers. So, if what I'm saying here sounds far-fetched, at least know that it is more clearly put elsewhere, uh, particularly by Paul. Now, consider, for example, Galatians 614 14-15, where he says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Or we can think of 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And yet, from another perspective, uh, the old is still here and the new hasn't come. Uh, There are still prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Matthew 24 has not exhausted all of its prophecies. Uh, And more importantly than prophecy needing to be fulfilled, from our perspective, there is work still to be fulfilled. There is work still to be done. There still is the work of going into all the world and preaching the gospel of the kingdom to all nations. There's the work of making disciples of all people. So, knowing that the kingdom in a sense has already started, that the new day has dawned, should instill us with a sense of confidence. Jesus alone actualized the arrival of the kingdom. He actually did the work and finished the job. And in a sense, the rest is just all details. No work can compete with the great work of Jesus on the cross, finishing the work of atonement. But there still is important work for us to do and so we should be instilled with diligence and the desire to work hard because the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few, that we still, as Jesus' disciples, have work to be done, knowing with confidence that he, in a very real way, is with us, even to the end of the age.